0: Greetings and welcome to Open Your Hands Conversations on Craft and Vision in Poetry. I'm your host, Zach Zaya, poet and high school English teacher. I'm delighted to have with me Father Joseph A. Brown, S.J., poet, educator, extraordinary human being. Uh, Welcome, Father Brown. So good to have you here.
1: Thank you, Zach
0: so i'm going to offer a brief introduction of Father Brown, and then we're going to jump right into a conversation um, that's really following up um and in response to to my first podcast, which was on father Brown's terrific poem uh everyone's mother was born in Mississippi so here we go um this is from father brown's uh um, profile uh, professor page um at carbondale university joseph a brown sj phd is a native of east st louis illinois he's a catholic priest with an extensive academic and pastoral career when he graduated from st louis university with a b.a in philosophy he attended johns hopkins university where he gained a master's degree in creative writing after his ordination to the priesthood in 1972 he taught theater and poetry at Creighton University for several years, eventually becoming artist in residence in 1978. Later, after receiving both the master's degree in Afro-American studies, a Ph.D. in American studies from Yale University, Father Brown taught at the University of Virginia and at Xavier University in New Orleans. Presently, he's a professor in the Department of Africana Studies at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. Um and I wanted to add on a personal note. So I'm a high school English teacher at Christa Ray Jesuit High School in Minneapolis. And Father Brown, you have been an incredible uh support uh to my teaching of poetry to my students. Um a number of times Father Brown has collaborated with my students that they read some of his poetry. Um so you know, in addition to admiring his his professional work, just on a personal note, he's been just an incredible presence in my life. So thank you, Father Brown, for being here.
1: Well, thank you for all of that. And since that profile was published on our web page, I now have been dragged back into the plantation to do administrative work again. As of this past Friday, July 1st, I'm now the director of the School of Africana and Multicultural Studies, something nobody knows what it's about because we reorganized our campus starting in 2017 to a place where all academic departments were removed. They had to be merged with each other and become schools, which are answerable to colleges, which are answerable to only God knows what. <laughs> and uh, it, the proposal for the School of Africana Multicultural Studies, actually I wrote it, but it took them over a year to approve it and ratify it by by the state. But that meant that all of last year I was not the director of it because... It was an an interim temporary uh, uh, position at that time. And so in April, I finally was asked if I wanted the job permanently. And it seemed like I should probably do something that I'm the only one who knew what the (laughs) proposal was. So I will now be working 12 months of the year, trying to organize once again, as I have done at every one of those schools, to either build or restore something that was in crisis mode. So that's another part of my ongoing narrative that every school I've gone at, Creighton, there was no theater major. There is now. Mm. At the University of Virginia, the Office of Afro-American Affairs was in complete free fall when the president of the university asked me after two years on the campus to take over as dean for just one year, which turned into two. And then I was asked, uh, quite enthusiastically by the faculty of the Institute for Black Catholic Studies and the President at Xavier to come to New Orleans and help to stabilize and refresh the Institute for Black Catholic Studies. When I came to Southern Illinois University Carbondale, there was only a minor in Black American Studies, but now there is not only the major in it and a graduate certificate, but also it is the foundational stone for this new school of Africana and multicultural studies. In other words, I'd have done it. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that definitely later on I want to talk a little more about, you know, this idea of prophetic utterance and prophetic work, and it's clear you're doing that prophetic work and have been doing it um, throughout your, your vocation. Um, um so congratulations on work, on on the new position um so um with the the reading and the podcast um last episode um I was really interested um in the background uh to the poem that you wrote for sister Thea Bowman and we've been corresponding a little on that um but I wonder if you might share with us. Um and the listeners, kind of your relationship to Sister Thea um, and then the occasion for that poem?
1: I would be happy to. Sister Thea Bowman and I met at in Techno, Illinois, when the National Association of Black Catholic Administrators had their national conference there, and a number of us were invited to give presentations. I was at the University of Virginia at the time, And I got invited to come out, and I talked about spirituality in black literature. Thea Bowman told this story often, even to some great celebrities like Harry Belafonte, who was originally going to do her life story as a movie. And it turned into, when he lost the screen rights to it, into Sister Act, which is a total insult to Thea's life and, and, and mission. But I thought she was a bag lady. She came in with a stocking cap on her head and a man's overcoat carrying two bags with her and I just thought she had wandered in from the street somewhere, even though Techni is uh, a remote area in Northern Illinois. And I gave my presentation. There were bishops and priests and lay people there and I did what I do. And later that evening there was a prayer service and that same weird woman was sitting in the back of the chapel and she suddenly started moaning and groaning and I did not know who she was or what she was so I asked this dear friend of mine, Father J. Glenn Murray, who is that? He said, that's Sister Thea Bowman. I said, Ann? I had not recognized her from way back in the day when the Joint Conference of Black Clergy Sisters and Seminarians met, but I probably met her there, but neither one of us knew each other. So she did this prayer service. It was astonishing. That's what she had been invited to do, was to lead the community in prayer. A few months later, I got a letter from her saying, you really ought to come to the Institute for Black Catholic Studies. And I thought, "Uh uh-huh, whatever. And um, so one morning, I got a phone call. Well, I call it a morning. I got a phone call, and it was this. This is Sister Thea Bowman." Your mama told me you never get out of bed before noon, so that's why I called you now. You don't know how to answer your letters, do you? Well, I said to myself, this is quite a, an epiphany. And so she invited me to come to New Orleans just to visit the school, the program, to see if I liked it. That also was a little misdirection. I wound up because we had to put one of our faculty into a treatment center for alcohol abuse. I took over his class as a visitor. She left for a week and I had to take over her classes (laughs) as a visitor. So I was teaching three classes a day for a good part of the Institute's three week session. And then they said, well, you really ought to become permanent. So I said, okay. And then I became the associate director, but living in, in Virginia working long distance and then the uh, crisis happened and I was really 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 strongly encouraged by Thea and some others. Okay, she had cancer in remission when I met her but it started to come back a few years later. So I met her in 1986. By 1988 it was back. In 1989 she gave that famous legendary speech to the Catholic bishops What does it mean to be black and Catholic? That was another time when I had stepped in and took over her class for that while she was gone on Hmm. these talks, and uh, we just became bonded from the very beginning. While I was there, she and I, she would call me up and she said, you got to come help me in this class because such and such is going on, And and I could tell story after story about how. She was one of the most disruptive human beings you would ever want to meet. And I joined in the fun on that so that we just taught our students, you can't trust your teachers. And uh, again, that's about a two hour documentary right there. But um, she called me a month before she died Mm -hmm. to say goodbye. And um, I was still in Virginia. And so when I got the notice that she died, I got in the car and drove from Virginia to Canton, Mississippi. I got a hotel in Jackson, went over to the wake service, which was on the 2nd of April, 1990. And as I walked into the church, the woman who was organizing the wake service said to me at the doorway, Oh, you're going to do a poem today, aren't you? And I said, you never asked me anything. She said, Oh, well, we really want you to do a poem. As I'm walking into the church, so I went and sat down in the front pew and another legendary black Catholic educator and nun, Sister Francesca Thompson sat down next to me and said, what's wrong? And I told her, she said, don't worry about it. You just do what you gotta do. So I got some paper and a pencil and I started working on something while every time somebody came up to say hello, Francesca went, leave him alone. And she started talking to him. So by the time this thing actually got underway, I had written something. So when the nun in charge of this wake service finally looked at me, I got up at the microphone and I read this poem and I had and I never had to change it again. Wow. But it was kind of like, if you really trust in the spirits guiding you and the ancestors hands on you, Thea wanted me to do something. She had told Beat Abram, her dearest friend about whom I wrote a book about her also, that he could not preach at her funeral because she didn't think he would survive it. Wow. So she had somebody else preach, but he was the one she told, you have to be the celebrant. Hmm. So she had organized everything.
0: <laughs> she was ready.
1: But there I was to do something at the wake service. Hmm. Uh, a year later, this uh, Sister of Mercy... Uh, decided that she wanted to put a book together in honor of Thea so she got John Ford's eulogy and she asked me if I had anything I sent her this poem and I wrote a, an article about prophecy, the possibility of prophecy in the black Catholic Church showing that you don't have to be clerically approved in order to be a prophet you just have to be able to speak the truth to the people in a way that calls them to justice mercy and redemption and mm-hmm. Thea Bowman was a prophet And I wrote about that. And unfortunately, the person who edited this book and put it together did something unheard of and totally unprofessional and unethical and she copyrighted every single item in that book under her name. I got that cleared up eventually, three years later. But um, I wrote this poem everybody's mother is, bo- was born in Mississippi because, Thea, you would always talk about, well, you know, like the old ladies would say. And I finally told her, you know you're lying. You're the old lady you're talking about. <laughs> she just made that up. <laughs> oh, no, I di-. Yes, she did. But anyway, we were both raised by the old ladies. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the foundation of black culture. The elders taught us religion, faith, and everything else male and female but it was the black mothers of the church and the community who established and performed a way for us children to behave and that's who she became and who I became we became Elvis and the fact that she was the most one of the most accomplished singers in the black catholic church and that music is also fundamental to the establishment and the continuation of black culture, she did everything right. And having come from a family of converts myself, I understood where she was coming from. I was baptized a Catholic, but neither one of my parents, they both were converts Hmm. in the 1930s. So we had a lot in common, and besides that, she... Well, we just knew each other. That's all I'm going to say. And mm-hmm. to this day, since since both of them in heaven. Now I'll have to get there to find out how she knew my mother to get my phone number. I'd never get <laughs> <find> that out. <laughs> but that's also part of fear. And for anybody who's going to be listening to this at ever, it's also important to know that she is now in, they are now in the process. We are now in the process yes. of establishing her cause for eventual canonization. Yes. And yeah. so it's just been an amazing uh, journey to have met her, and we laughed about. It. The last thing I'm going to say is one day, this Monsignor from Mobile, Alabama, in her class that first summer, decided to be dis- disrespectful towards her. Who do you think you are? You don't know what you're talking about. I was sitting on the sh- uh, on a window uh, near a wind by a window sill on top of the air conditioning unit in this seminar room at Xavier. And he said that, and I was in his face standing over him at the seminar table telling him what he needed to do with his sorry life. <laughs> well, Fia said to me a, a week or so ago, uh, after that, she said, Joseph, you ever thought about being an animal? No, she said, do you ever think about animals? I said, what are you talking about? She ever thought about being one. I said, well, I guess, you know, the male ego, maybe a stallion or a, a, an eagle. She said. What about the mongoose? And I said, "Excuse me." Now there's four or five people in her room. I said, "The mongoose." She said, "You know, they're the little bitty furry creatures. They run all through the high grass, and every once in a while, they sit up and they look all around, and they eat rats and snakes." And I said, "And what are you telling me?" She said, "You know, the other day when that man started talking about me." I kept saying, where is Joseph, how come he don't say something, and all of a sudden there you were standing right over him, and we never saw you move. That made me think of the mongoose. (laughs) That went all over the black Catholic community, (laughs) and she absolutely was right, because I do, I have been known to do that. I could be sitting by a wall in a classroom, and the next thing you know I'm standing right in front of the student who has been disrespectful, and I have been known to do that, but And when I told my mother, you know, Sister Thea Bowman talked about me being kind of like a mongoose. And the first thing my mother said was, yeah, those are the animals that eat rats and snakes. Well, I don't want that on my tombstone. But again, she named me.
0: (laughs) I'm speaking with Jesuit priest and poet Father Joseph Brown. We'll be back in a moment. All right. Um, thank you, Father Brown, for for just illuminating uh, that that uh, wonderful poem um, with your relationship to Sister Thea. Um, so we mentioned a little bit this idea of, of prophecy and of, of the prophetic. Um, and in my first podcast episode, I, I referenced your essay, uh, This Little Light of Mine. And there was a mm-hmm. quote I read. I don't have it on me right at the, this second, but it was something about um, the relationship of prophets and the institutions that they are sometimes part of. And I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about, you know, what you feel like prophecy meant to Sister Thea, you know, as as a black Catholic and also what it meant to you and maybe what you learned from Sister Thea in your prophetic understanding of your own vocation.
1: I was amazed when we finally did talk to each other about how closely aligned we were in our education and background. But the prophet is the person who says, You must follow the law that you assented to, the covenant. That's what the prophet does in the in the biblical and ecclesial sense. And the prophet is formed from the womb, we're told over and over. Whether or not the prophet feels the qualifications within them, God says to the prophet, you will speak my words. Now, in the black tradition that Thea Bowman presents to us to this day, she learned the songs of the old ones. And I have made my scholarly career dependent upon knowing that is the sound from traditional places in the, on the continent of Africa, to the slave castles, to the ships, hulls, to this new land, even people who could not speak the same words as a language because they were deliberately divorced from one another so that they could not speak issues of rebellion and uprising on those ships elsewhere, they had sound, and that sound has gone uninterrupted. So when somebody wants to stand up in the assembly and raise their voice, it's got to touch everybody. And that's what Black Sacred Song does and all of Black music at its best. And Thea carried that. Now I have been known when I have nobody, when I'm not paying any attention, i stand off on the side the microphones on, people say I can sing, but that's not what I do. But I will teach that music and I will use that music and I will reference that music. So for me to write the poem, for instance, about everybody's mother was born in Mississippi, it's basically saying she became the people who taught and instructed her. And she's carrying their message. You've got to be children and not enemies. You have to understand that if you persist, you will get up the mountain. You have to understand that we've all got a song within us and that everybody is, as the song says, anybody asks you who you are, you're telling you a child of God. So the whole poem is structured around children. At the, The year before Thea died, the summer before Thea died, right around this time, she was too sick to come to the Institute, so I got a bus, two buses, and we went to Canton. She came from the radiation therapy session that morning. Her companion, Sister Dorothy Kundiger, rolled her into that little church, the Church of the Holy Child Jesus in Canton, and the entire Institute for Black Catholic Studies was waiting for her. She looked emaciated. It was just so sad to see. She was frail. She had marks on her where they were putting the radiation tubes in her. And we we put on a show, we performed for her, singing, dancing, telling stories, acting fools. We just did it all. And at the end of it, she got, she said, can I have the microphone? I thank you all. And she said a number of other things. She said, now I know y'all expected me to sing something. At that point, people were crying all over the place because she was telling us goodbye. And she sang the iconic song "Done made my vows to the Lord. And I will go, I shall go, to see what the end will be. And she changed one of the lyrics. When I get there before you do, I'm telling God you're coming there too. Not if I get there, but mm. when I get there. Mm. But children go where I send thee, which is the kind of con- continuity in this poem. It's her saying, I'm on the other side of the shore now. Mm. Y'all go do it. Yes. And remember, you my children. And so I took the songs that she sang, and put them into this poem as kind of a little echo, call, and response. And as you pointed out in your interpretation reading of it, there are parenthetical places, but there are also bracketed places. Mm -hmm. And the bracketed places are where she's actually, in my mind, singing to us in the parenthetical is the call and response, me talking about her or to her.
0: Yeah. So yeah, you yeah. got
1: when you want to talk about the structure of the poem, it's the kind of children go where I send thee. How shall I send thee? That's what she's singing to yes. us. Okay. In yes. my memory. Yes. So then, whatever is go where you know how am I going to get there or oh, yeah, go yeah. where I'm sending you. That bracket is her voice. Hmm. And the poem is all of them together. Her voice, my voice, and the poet's voice. Yeah. Because that's the other way that I've always written poems. And these are, these are what I call the occasional poems, the public poems, the mm. ritual poems. Right. And they're different from the reflective, soft, gentle, quiet poems that I have been best known for. But on occasions, you have to do a public poem. Yeah. And yeah. this is one of them. And what I find so interesting is, and you and I have talked about this in another way, is that uh, in early June, I preached at the Jubilee Mass of the Midwest province of the Jesuits, and the opening reading was Elijah climbing the mountain through the earthquake, the fire, and the lightning, and the storms. And I use that as the notion of persistence. Hmm. The voice of God was not in the earthquake, not in the storm, not in the fire. And that's also what the prophet is. The prophet is always going to the place where the voice of God is undistracted and uncompromised. And then they return to the people to tell what they have learned. Hmm. That is something that Zora Neale Hurston talked about in Conversions and Visions. You go off into the wilderness, you go out to see. But that's what Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and Augustine and Ignatius and everybody else. That's what the, re- the the spiritual exercise is. Go out, hear the voice, contemplate mm-hmm. the voice of God and come back into the world. Yeah. But that, that was Thea's whole style of being for us. That's what I mean by prophecy. Yeah. I want you to go off into the wilderness and come back and tell me what I need to do to live in my wilderness.
0: Mm. Yes. And... And maybe it's a good moment, too, to give a shout-out to another of your publications. Because when you were talking about um, that poem and kind of the really the multi-voicedness of it, like you and Thea mm-hmm. and the community kind of talking with each other, it reminded me of the, the book you wrote that's a retreat, a seven-day retreat with Father Pete Abrams, um, Sister Thea, and then you um, kind of speaking into that as well. I mean, it's a really... I just I, I, it's on my mind because i just did that retreated kind of preparation for this conversation but it feels like it's it's connected in some ways to the poem um in the in the way it's constructed you and have also no that idea yeah yeah jump on in
1: no you have no idea how how uh, how you have done it again uh, i got a phone call one day from somebody i've mentioned already sister francesca thompson who said to me, I just read your retreat book. How did you manage to put yourself in there when you only got Thea and B talking to each other? And I had a laugh because I thought, well, she caught me again. But when the original uh, invitation to do that book, it was just about Thea herself. And I said, no. She and Beat Abram were bound hmm. like Francis and Claire. Yeah. And therefore, I want them in a platonic dialogue. Mm -hmm. I want the two of them sitting there talking. But they were both dead. Because B didn't live another year after her. Mm -hmm. He was dead by January 1991. So, I wanted the two of them to be talking about what they had taught everybody. But in order to do that, I had to channel their ideas and their voices so I had to be that instrument, the same thing that the prophet has to do. I had to sit down and let them enter me so I could say it to them. And that's what Sister Francesca said. You managed to get both of their voices individually in there, but I hear you in all the way through it. So I just think it's kind of not only fascinating, but confirming that you would see that that's exactly what that book does.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful, and yeah, for the listeners out there, I highly recommend it. And uh, you gave me this tip when I when I told you I think it was last week or two weeks ago. You can like, there's a whole bunch of amazing music that is part of the retreat, and you know the glories of the internet. You can you can kind of YouTube almost all of them. And now, yeah, I, you I, can. Yeah, there's also a really really great channel that's just Sister Thea singing some of those songs too. So it's a, it's a really amazing resource so highly recommend it um maybe it'd be it'd be good maybe to think about uh just the the broader catholic church for a second um in may when we celebrated was it 40 or 50 years of your your jesuit priesthood
1: it was 60 years 60. of me being a jesuit. See, i'm sorry i'm sorry yeah and and, and uh we won't talk about <laughs> what I have. But that was sixty years of wow. me being a Jesuit and fifty years of me being ordained a priest. Wow. And wow. the third one, to make it the trifecta that people have joked about, it was this is my celebrating my twenty-fifth year at this university. Wow. So 60,
0: 50 and twenty-five.
1: Wow. Well one part of and, the celebration yeah. was that two other African American priests were also ordained on May 27th. Oh yes. But at different years. So all three of us, whenever we're able to celebrate that day in one city or another, Lexington, Kentucky for Father Norman Fisher or New Orleans for Father Tony Ricard or in East St. Louis for me. Hmm. So that was, so yes, May 13th, 14th and 15th of 2022, uh, a group of about 12 or 13 14 people organized that weekend so that all three of those elements could be uh, recognized
0: yeah thank you for naming it's that part of
1: me yeah. being the it's part of me being the elder because I knew we had to do it but I wanted people that I know and care about to meet each other hmm because it's going to be up to them to continue the circle not me
0: yeah, it was it was just a, a beautiful, beautiful event. So Christine and my wife and I were privileged to be there. Um, and one of the things that uh, a, a book that came up in conversation a number of times you, you were talking earlier about you know Sister Act and how it really misrepresented um, the life of Sister Thea the book Subversive Habits came up in conversation. It's a book that I just just finished reading. I know it's you know a lot of people are are, are digging into it. And I was just wondering as you like. You know, subversive habits is really really talking about um, the, the 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 racism uh, that black catholic sisters experienced from you know the the nineteenth century up to today um, and as I was as as I was reading it just especially thinking about like the nineteen fifties, sixties seventies eighties, I was just wondering and wanting to talk with you because you know you you lived through those 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 times. Um, and just kind of your Your perspective um, as a black Catholic priest, um, just kind of processing some of those things because I'm pretty sure you've read the text as well. Um, Just kind of your your thoughts on kind of that era or is that too big of a question?
1: (laughs) Shannon D. Williams, the author of Subversive Habits, was a pre-doctoral student here at Southern Illinois University. And one day, as I was sitting in my office, three students rushed up to my office and said, do you know this new teacher, do you know this new teacher? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, she, I think you all, you must know each other, because she was talking about that that movie Sister Act. And I said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And I guess in her introductory class notes, she was talking about how Belafonte had gotten the rights to do it, they, because Hollywood is the way it is, they cha- he lost those rights after he'd gotten the first version of a script done and they turned it away from a converted girl from down in Canton, Mississippi into this stellar, prophetic brilliant scholar into somebody who was working at a casino in Las Vegas and that with that dubious job description into going around and just being an absolute fool totally superficial so it had nothing to do with Thea, right but that was what it was supposed to have been a long time ago but this woman i had never met is teaching this downstairs in my office building so i sent the word i think you need to come find me yeah and we have been close ever since then but and the cover of the book has that again holy card picture of sister antona ebo at Selma mm-hmm. in her full religious habit, and she's one of the very first people to ever say, Because I am black and I am Catholic, that's why I'm here on the front line of justice. Mm-hmm. The black nuns of 1829 and 1841, Oblate Sisters of Providence in Baltimore, and the Sisters of the Holy Family in New Orleans were treated as third or fourth class citizens. As we look at how the Constitution is being revised once again, they had no rights within the church, but they were able to organize structurally. And I've said this quite often, when the whole theory of feminism and all the scholarship of feminism is talked about, the black nuns are left out of it. They were building independent, self-controlled institutions before any women in this country were able to. And they were schools, which only goes to the great black tradition of from slavery to freedom through literacy. Frederick Douglass and everybody else said that Phyllis Wheatley said it in the 1700s by the work she did and the life she lived. But those women being told you couldn't wear religious habits in New Orleans being told that you couldn't do this you couldn't do this and maybe you can become nuns if you long as you come over to the seminary and to the and to the parishes and work as housekeepers and cooks and how they had to say no and it all goes back if you want to talk about the more general principle to one song anybody ask you who you are who you are who you are anybody ask you who you are you tell them you're a child of God. That was what Thea said at, a year before she died to the bishops. What does it mean to be black and Catholic? Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. I have spent from the age of seven, thats means 70 years now. I have consciously been trained in racism in the Catholic church. My mother and father taught me that from the time I was seven years old or I could not survive it today. I know some young person right now who has been accused of being a drug addict because he's on a prescribed medi- medication, uh, reg- regimen, uh, uh, the presumption of the black priests of the black men who wanted to be priests was such that if you're really dark skinned, then that only tells us in our white eyes that you're probably going to be a sexually out of control beast. So we can't let you in. The lighter skin you are, the better chance you have of coming into our religious communities or being ordained a priest. And we will never send you where there are a lot of white women because we can't trust your body. That was not the reason for the sexual abuse problems in the Roman Catholic Church. As I have said, kind of quietly, but I don't have a problem saying it out loud. When all of the DNA studies that are done about the Georgetown 272 enslaved people that were sold in order to endow Georgetown and the rest of the Catholic institutions that the Jesuits had anything to do with, if you ever were able to do a complete DNA testing on that, you'd find some of those descendants had Jesuit blood in them. Come on now, if you're not human, I can do anything. And sexual abuse didn't start 25 years ago or 30 years ago. It started with popes who had their sons named the Cardinals and call them their nephews. Come on now. This has been so basic to the to the shadow narrative of, of Catholicism. But who gets blamed and who has all of that sinfulness projected onto their bodies? Black men, black women. When people who are highly sensitive and, and deeply spiritual, like the people of the indigenous nations, where is that group of priests and nuns there isn't one because well your spirituality really doesn't fit what we think is catholic and at the same time you've got the pope 85 years old bouncing around in his seat to the Congolese mass that was done at St. Peter's a few days ago the zairean rite uh-huh you've had pope after pope telling africa you have to you have gifts to give the universal church well we've been trying to say that to the american church now since oh i don't know the civil war at least when you had a whole regiment of black catholic union soldiers singing sacred songs during the civil war in south carolina we've all they were they were and to go back to this i have a hard time Seeing how some people are valorized or sanctified when I know how racist they are or were. And in within my religious community, what they did to me, I don't want to see them applauded on a screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thea Bowman had the very same experience in her religious community. And it's kind of like one of those kinds of jokes that she doesn't need to, I don't think that they need to find two or three um, Miracles. Yeah. Because she survived the religious community. That's a miracle enough. Mm hmm. Fast tracker. Yeah. That's how I feel. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. This, I mean, this, wow. I, I'm so just enriched and nourished by just being in your presence, Father Brown. Um, I also don't want to take too much. One, let me just yeah, say yeah, one other yeah,
1: thing. for sure. Poetry. Mm hmm. That was my song story. I started writing when I was 12. And even though we didn't sing the black songs in the Catholic church back in those days, they were in my grandmother's plural churches. And I can remember talking about them in grade school and special class projects as early as the third or fourth grade. They were always part of my tradition. But to have some way to speak a truth that nobody else would understand or ever say to me, that's what poetry did for me from the time I was 12 years old, mm. in the Jesuit training program, and all the way through. And when I finally took vows in 1964, we had a, we had a tradition of a devotional name of vows. You know, in the old days, nuns and priests took their religious names, they changed their names, so we had that in the Jesuits, but it wasn't public, it was just a devotion. Mm-hmm. And I picked Saint Luke, yes, because he was the non Jew in the group, he was a writer, and he was an artist. Mm-hmm. And he knew how to tell stories about the people that were left out of the other narratives that fit, and not only that, his feast day was the same day as my father's birthday. So I just knew it had to be Luke. Wow. So a year after I took vows, I was publishing poetry in America Magazine and Thought Magazine. And I asked John Moffat, the, the poetry editor of, of America Magazine, would it be okay if the next poem that you published in mine had Luke instead of Joseph Brown? And he said, not a problem whatsoever. So that's been going on now since 1965 because it's about how i found a way to speak out something deep within me and locate other people who would be voiceless otherwise and that's what the music does in the black community that's what poetry that's what all art does so i don't I, I i you know go ahead and ask me something
0: no i'm really glad you you mentioned that too because yeah like the poem that i selected is very much like a like you said, a, a public occasional poem, but that doesn't do justice to the the range uh, of styles and s- subjects um, that your your poetry encompasses. So yes, I mean and, and just like thinking about Luke as as, as this, the, the voice of the poet, and in some ways not not identical to the voice of you know your work in in other aspects of your life i think that's i think this is important to, to point out a name so i really appreciate that um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah no this <laughs> this has been such a wonderful conversation do you have time for maybe one, one more question sure beautiful um so one of the things i remember also at that um conference uh, not the conference the the celebration Uh, in May was we talked a little bit about the 1619 project. I don't know if you you remember our conversation, Um, but I was surprised, right? Just because as an educator, a high school educator, I've been really leaning into that as a resource. And you had, I think, a a really astute critique about the 1619 project um, that at the time I was like, oh, I really really want to expand on that. And And I think reading actually subversive habits I think helped me see, more of like kind of where you're where that was coming from, and I and I read the uh the National Catholic Reporter article that you mentioned by Tom Roberts where he quotes you. Um, and the quote that I have I wrote down before the uh this conversation was you know, the Spanish and French had as much of an impact on the enslavement of Africans as did the English, they all had colonies in what is now the United States. Um, and that was just one quote, but I i wondered if you might want to just kind of expand on. You know on that thought because I think it's a really interesting and important one right now
1: Well, I kind of halfway alluded to that and didn't know I was doing it when I mentioned the black union soldiers who were catholic They came out of florida Because an awful lot of enslaved people ran away so to speak into florida and into the spanish territories Because once they got there if they became catholic they could become free Now in 1526, when some of the early explorers or conquistadores were coming over into this new world, they had Africans on those ships. And we all know, everybody I ever went to grade school with would tell you this, that we were always taught that that Spanish colony town, St. Augustine in Florida, was founded long before the ships landed in Virginia with the negars on them. And the church records are conclusive proof that there were Africans being baptized in St. Augustine, Florida and other small settlements before 1600, let alone before 1619. Now, when you start to talk about the 13 colonies, when you start to talk about the United States of America, we have been so victimized into being miseducated about what boundaries mean because america has been changing geographic boundaries for as long as it has been a country why are you telling people they can't come back to their homeland at the border today since we took so much of mexico from mexico in order to expand slavery in the Mexican-American War. Why would I want to go and see the Alamo? I mean, come on, people. You have, if you are a white, male, Protestant, English-speaking person, you get to tell the story of America. If you're not, you better sit there and listen and bring me another drink. That's the problem of how the, quote, dominant narrative has been carried on. And yes, slavery, well, yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, the enslavement of Africans on a massive scale in the English colonies began in 1619. But enslavement began in the English colonies when the pilgrims were enslaving the native indigenous people. And when you see all the people who were here 50, 60, 75 years before 1619, you have to say, and the historical documentation is there. It's not up for grabs. Mm-hmm. But the assumption that, well, the narrative is English. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah.
0: Well, and also, that's what the yeah. problem
1: with this country is.
0: Yeah. And also, it seems like the the sixteen nineteen narrative kind of lets the Catholic Church off the hook a little bit too, with the focus on English, because as, exactly as Shannon D. Williams pointed point. out, yeah, there were there were papal bulls that were signing off uh, on on selling and slaves, and if you
1: and I, it would bet it would be better to uh, enslave the Africans because the native people, and it was that whole color consciousness of the coding of, of biological uh, categories that the darker you were, the less close you were to God or full humanity, and yeah there were papal bulls there were all sorts of things, all through the quote new world, Mm -hmm. and you've got look at how (sighs) Unipea Serra, with all of his missions the Spanish missions, come on now people we you, we have all of this in American Catholic history, but we never make the connection. And we're not supposed to, because as we assimilate into American culture, we assimilate into learning and, re- and reciting the dominant narrative, which leaves out, as we have said so often, in the last few weeks and months, who's included in the Constitution and who isn't? But who's included in the story of America and who isn't? And each time, you know, the, the, the yesterday morning on one of the radio shows on public radio, they did this a whole hour presentation on the complexities of the Star-Spangled Banner and the and the verses we don't listen to or never sing, hmm. and the fact that Francis Scott Key was a slaveholder, and you talk about the land of the free and the home of the brave. Hmm. Uh, uh, it's too complicated. We cannot simply just say, well, that's the way it was when the entire Constitution was written and they immediately put 10 amendments to it. Some of them to completely favor and gain the votes of the slaveholding of the South. But in 1776, African enslavement was legal in all 13 colonies. So I don't know what I was celebrating yesterday. hmm but the, to to be fair and respectful of the 1619 project the young woman who edited and produced that she has revised this the this, the narrative quite strongly mm-hmm. in the book version as opposed to the new york times series yeah. because of these historical challenges you can't leave this out yeah yeah but that's you're right the catholic church has got to be responsible for what it did and for how it did it differently. Because that was always a problem that if you were born African, mulatto, mestizo, whatever, through the Catholic territories, you had a much better chance of being freed mm-hmm. than if you were done if that happened to you in the Protestant territories. or oh, we wouldn't have a marked deportees.
0: Yeah, this. So, yeah, um, I, yeah, I. I yeah, I really,
1: Church. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, so it, okay. this is this is the opening for so um, for so so many more conversations, um, and yeah, I just I really really appreciate your time, Father Brown. Um, yeah, just one opening the poem, opening the life of S- Sister Thea Bowman to so many more people to me for sure. Um, but yeah, just thank you for your your witness as a, as a poet, as a prophet, as an educator as a priest, Um, and thanks so much for making time today. This has been terrific and really beautiful.
1: Well, you know, I have an incredible amount of respect for the work you have been doing at that school, and also for the work that you have continued to do in your own right, literally, R-I-G-H-T-W-R-I-T-E, your own right, as an accomplished poet also and I don't care what anybody says about you. You really are not a knucklehead. <laughs> I appreciate that, Most mother. Most days, most days. So anyway, <laughs> I have watched you, and I have watched you in, in practice also, do some incredible work with young people, and I would not be... I, I could not be happier than to be helping you any way I can because you are exactly what I've been talking about. The next generation has to carry this on further and do it the same way and to confirm in us old people that our vision was correct. So I want to thank you also.
0: Thanks for listening to the first Poet Dialogue episode of Open Your Hands. To read more of Father Brown's excellent poetry and reflections, go to sankofamuse.blogspot.com. And thanks to my cousin, musician Dustin Coppertunes Jensen, who has generously allowed me to use his song Speed of Understanding as introduction, interlude, and closing music to this episode. To find out more about Coppertunes, go to soundcloud.com slash coppertunes.